Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. I had a few things that I didn't get to say during the Discern series, and since I have the microphone, I decided I'd say them. <laughs> so I want to... I wanna, I, I really want you to understand the biblical idea of success. Because what spiritual discernment does is it gives you a grid, it gives you questions to ask yourself about, is what I'm investing in, and is the way I'm living my life, is it on a trajectory of true satisfaction, of genuine success, of real Fulfillment, or am I investing in something that's not worth so much of my life? And so Jesus gives us a really clear statement about success, but he does it through talking about failure. So I want you to read with me. This is, this is Luke 14, verses 28 through 30. I like it when you read God's word out loud with me. So will you read? Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. Now Jesus is a master teacher. And when Jesus is saying this, you must understand something. He doesn't really care if people ridicule you. He went to a cross, the symbol of ridicule. We're going to see as we go through, he asked you to take up your cross and to follow him. So what's he really talking about? He's talking about, is what you're saying yes to what you really ought to be saying yes to? And is what you're saying no to what you really ought to say no to? Because in the end, he's saying, your life will be measured by what you give yourself to and what you hold back from yourself. Think about it this way. The Bible is a a revelation of God's covenantal boundaries. And everything that the Bible teaches gives you parameters, boundaries in which to live your life. These things are fixed. You should never commit adultery. You should never murder. You should never lie. You should never covet. These things are fixed. But within those parameters, inside those boundaries, if you go in the Bible and say, who should I marry? It's not going to tell you. And if you pick Esther or Ruth or Mary, and it's not the right Esther, Ruth, or Mary, you're going to be miserable. Even though you said, well, it was a book in the Bible. If you pick a job, and you say you have two jobs to pick, but one of them, or both of them, are moral, both of them are perfectly fine work, but it doesn't fit you, then you're going to be miserable in that job. And so within the the biblical boundaries, there has to be a sensitivity on your part to the work of the Holy Spirit moving in your innermost being, nudging you, leading you, guiding you, unsettling you, 
So that even the things that are moral, you'll know what is wise. This is what's called spiritual discernment. It's a spiritual sightedness. It's where you begin to see reality, but you see reality with more than just your resources. It's essential to study your Bible. It's essential to know the word and the will of God, but it's even more personal that God himself wants to share his heart with you. He wants to speak with you heart to heart and lead you in such a way that you will know his heart for you. Well, that means that you have to be attentive to more than just the principles of his word. You have to be attentive to the presence of God. And not just in some things, but in all things. For example, if all you do is seek God's will for the big decisions, what are you going to do the rest of the time? It's not just in his big de- your big decisions that he wants to manifest his presence. It's in every decision that you make. He wants you to see his presence with spiritual sightedness in all things. There's not a single decision you make that he's not interested in. If you read the book of Romans, you'll see that you're everything to him. If he would give you what was most precious, his own son, if he would allow his own son to die for you, it means you mean more to him than you can ever realize. I ask him for parking spaces in Manhattan. (laughs) Those are minor miracles. I'm not talking about paid parking places. I'm talking about free parking places. He's concerned about those things because he's concerned about you. See, if you're a Christian, you know that God is everywhere present. But that doesn't mean you're attentive to how he's present in everything that you do. The key of moving well in this life is attentiveness to his presence, which means you begin to access his wisdom Now, wisdom, I've been saying this and drilling it in, wisdom is competence in regards to how the world really works. You see, if you're a constant complainer, if you're constantly having life throw you curves, you know what that means? It means that you're not competent in regards to how life really works. If life is continually baffling you, you don't have much wisdom. Now, you can blame life. Or you can start to grow wisdom. Because the one in you is the wisdom of God. Jesus has given to you his spirit to dwell within the walls of your life. Communicating with you in everything, but you have to learn to be attentive to him. Let me think about this for a minute. How long does it take you to realize that life is not fair? And yet all of us go, that's so unfair. How long does it take us to realize, you know, that so many things that we think are going to happen do not happen? And then yet get devastated when they do. Have you ever noticed that some people interview well for jobs but don't work real well? And yet we're so taken by surprise when we, when we believe the sales pitch of somebody and then they don't really live up to what they said they would do. This is the way that life is. 
And in some ways, until we take into account reality, we can't be wise. I, I, I meet lots of gifted Christians. I meet lots of Christians who are, in their mind, very faith-filled, but not very reality in touch. And the truth is that somebody who's not in touch with reality has faith in faith. Not faith in God for reality. You see, if you can't be honest, if you can't be in touch with reality, that's not faith. Let me, let me illustrate this in a way. In Ephesians 5.18, it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? You remember that. That the access, the attentiveness to the Spirit, a, an acute consciousness, an acute awareness of the Holy Spirit is what is needed for every believer. But what does it contrast that with? It says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why do you think it uses the idea of drunkenness versus fullness with the Spirit? Well, I think it's simple. One of the reasons people get drunk is to depress their ability to feel reality. It is to distort, to distract. It is to deny or somehow to take away the pain, at least for a time. So why is that? Well, it's because alcohol is a depressant. So the idea is if I can drink, I can depress my brain enough so I can't feel how painful reality is. But what is God saying? God is saying, in truth, you can face reality, but not by suppressing it, not by denying it, but rather by having a resource beyond yourself. By being in touch with the Holy Spirit, you can go through life with eyes wide open and you have all the resources that you need to conquer those obstacles. Think about all the fears we face right now. Economic fears, political fears, racial injustice, all of these things. How in the world, when they are so evident that the reality around us is chaotic, that the reality around us does not lead to security, especially if you face it in truthfulness and in genuineness. Well, the only way that we can is if the resources for our lives are not coming from our government. They're not coming from Wall Street. They're not even coming from our family. Think about this with me. Paul, who faced the oppressiveness of life, yet he said, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In all things we are more than conquerors. If God is for us, who can be against us? These friends, if that's a cliche that's making you deny reality instead of saying, I can face any reality because if God is for me, who can be against me? Now, I can't say it better than that. Come on. You got to give me a little help here. Are you understanding what I'm saying? You can either depress your ability to feel reality, which is not spiritual discernment, 
Or you can say, reality is too big for me. I need something beyond myself. Did you hear Farrell? Sometimes the worship team preaches my sermon before I get up here. (laughs) What did Farrell say? The spirit in you is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's why if God be for you, who can be against you? That's why if Wall Street's falling apart, you still have the promise of God that he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He might use Wall Street, but he doesn't need Wall Street. And until we listen to reality with spiritual sightedness, the reality will scare us instead of being an obstacle that we are meant to overcome. If you are born of God, you are no longer of this world, and you will face opposition in this world. But that which is born of God must overcome even this world. Now, are you tracking with me? You guys are the most quiet group. I'm going back to 8.30. (laughs) Maybe I need Alan in every service. Are you tracking with me in this? Because this is important. So here's the deal. Jesus said, if you start out but you don't finish, you're a fool. And you know what? There are so many things in the scripture that speaks to this. Listen, when it describes love, it doesn't say love is an affection. It says love never fails. Love never ends. It doesn't say you should have a love or you should try to love someone and, and not let it fail. It says the definition of love is it does not fail and it never ends. Well, I don't know about you, but I've had people who said they loved me and it did fail. So that means it wasn't love. In other words, at some point, there are people who will say to you, I love you because of how you make them feel and of what you give to them. You're a commodity, not a person to them. Because then when you no longer provide that feeling or you no longer meet that need, then the love fails, which says it wasn't love to begin with. And what we see, friends, in even Christianity, even in the church, is people who only know how to love if you make me feel a certain way or you meet a certain need in my life. And so what's happening is we have failed to understand what the success that Jesus wants for us. Paul understood it really well. And he said this. He said, the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Would you read that with me? Would you put that in your own words with me, your own lips? Would you say it with me? The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, when you decide you're going to build a house, then you have to understand the reality of what you're saying. And you have to understand the cost of what you're committing to. And then you have to go for it in such a way that you finish the race. Listen, uh, some time ago, the, the thinking of NASA really, really affected me. Have you ever thought about how NASA does what it does? 
They don't build a rocket and say, should we go to the moon? No, they think the goal is the moon. And then they build to accomplish the mission. The goal is Mars, so they build differently so they can accomplish the mission. They don't just build a rocket and then decide where it's going. They decide where it's going, then they build forward to accomplish the mission. Basically, what God is asking you, what Jesus is saying, success, is that you know what your purpose is, you know what your mission is, you know where you're going, and then you decide on the basis of finishing the race, of keeping the faith, of of fighting the good fight. On the basis of that, you say, here's what I give my yes to. And here's what I give my no to. See, if you say to me, well, I always say no, then you're missing the race altogether. Or if you say to me, I never say no, then you're wasting the resources that will finish the race. But if you say yes to the right things and no to the right things, then the investment of your life has counted the cost and you'll be able to finish the race. How do you do that? Well, it's, it's actually a little simpler than I, than I thought in the beginning of my race. See, my thought was when I saw my weaknesses or when I saw my failings or when I saw others' failings, my thought was I need to rise up and make myself a better Christian. But the truth is that doesn't work at all. The only thing that you're being called to is to say, I am a broken person. I am a person who is spiritually poor or bankrupt. I have weaknesses in my life. I have areas that need cleansing. I have areas that need healing. When you are honest about the truth of your life, God is pleased. You enter into the pleasure of God when you're being real. He loves truth from the innermost being. And that's where he can work. But the issue is this. I don't say, God, help me do better. I allow God to be the agent of change. I allow God to be the power to change. In other words, he's looking for your consent, not your willfulness. He's looking for you to say, God, whatever it takes, heal me. God, whatever it takes, where I'm weak, give me your strength. God, whatever it takes. Now, this is very practical if you begin to realize this. In other words, God is not simply interested in getting you into compliance with what society or anybody else says is healthy. He's not interested in merely suppressing your symptoms. What God is interested in is the consent to do the deep surgery about the root issues of your life. Some of us have wrestled with addiction, substances, other things. Some of us have wrestled with sexual immorality and trying to be in some way holy or righteous with our own bodies. Some of us have struggled with health issues and all of these things that begin to make you feel like less than a conqueror, but more like the conquered. And what God says is, don't try to make yourself better, nor ask me to just empower your will. Rather, give me consent to heal you from the inside out. 
Say, Lord, here's my weakness. Let your strength be perfected in my weakness. Lord, here's my brokenness. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't use techniques along the way to help you. It's very possible that sometimes when someone is an alcoholic that they definitely need the help of a support group. But let me tell you, the help of a support group can at least quell the symptoms. God wants to take away the cause of the symptoms. A technique cannot do that. The same is true with any area of unhealthiness in your life where the symptoms are showing up. God's not embarrassed by those symptoms. He's allowing them to come up at the right time so you can say, God, I give you consent now to heal what these symptoms are revealing. Listen to what Jesus said about his own life. In John 5.30, why don't you read Jesus' words out loud with me? I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and what does he say about his earthly life? I do nothing of my own initiative. Here he has access to unlimited power. He has known what it is to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet he is living as a suffering servant, doing nothing of his own initiative. Do you not realize when I say that, if the Son of God did nothing of his own initiative, then isn't it possible that you doing everything of your own initiative has been a complete failure? Have you ever wondered why God doesn't answer your prayer? Usually because you're telling him to bless your initiative. Here's the deal. God will never give success at all to your idols. And he will not resource your idolatry and he will not even mix his power with your idol's power. In the book of Jeremiah, he says to the people this, you can have your idols or you can't have me, but you can't have both. And he says, when they get in trouble, he says, let your idols save you. See, what we want is our idolatry and God. We want to be passive in our worship and our service and our surrender to God, but we don't want him to quit protecting us our business, our health, our relationships, our families. And when he doesn't do what we want him to do, even though he's saying, let your idols save you, we're angry with him instead of repenting. Anything in your life right now that you're doing of your own initiative is something that is doomed to failure. (laughs) That wasn't God calling then, was it? So... Think through this with me. What does Jesus say? He says, not only does Jesus understand and know the parameters and the boundaries of the word of God, but he says, as I hear. So there has to be, even though he knows scripture, he's the writer of scripture, yet he says, while I'm living my life, I am listening attentively to the spirit before I judge what I should just say yes to and what I should say no to. 
And so before I make a move, I already know what the Spirit is initiating in my life. Do you understand that the very same Spirit that led Jesus is the very same Spirit that He has sent to indwell the walls of your life? Your sensitivity to the movement of the Spirit within the sphere of your life will begin to be the very cause of success like never before in your life. Not listening, doing your own initiative is basically asking God, will you make my idols successful? Now, if you think about it, there, in any relationship, particularly like a marriage relationship, there is a place that the spouse has that nobody else has. And so if you really love your spouse, you will not allow any other person to take your place. Uh, for illustration, I love my wife so dearly, and no one can have my place in my wife's life. If they do, I know some people in Brooklyn. <laughs> that would speak to for prayer, obviously. You know. <laughs> but you see, you cannot truly love someone, have a place in their life, and let something or someone else have that place. That is not love, that's just something else. But God loves you in such a way that he will not let anyone else have that place, nor will he give success to anything else in your life that would take his place. Even if it's family, even if it's your health, even if it's your money, even if it's your talent, whatever it is that you call ultimate and treasure, God says, if it's a competitor with me, I will destroy that competitor. So the only way to move is to move by hearing. And the only way to hear is to have a heart that's surrendered to him. His place cannot be given to any good thing even. Because when you make a good thing an ultimate thing, then you make it a God. And here's the deal. Most of our fears and our greatest anxieties are centered around things we have made God in our life. When you take even an, a good thing and you treasure it so that it becomes an ultimate thing, then that thing becomes the source of worship. And fear and anxiety are a form of worship. I know you have to think about these things, but every now and then just shake your head yes with me. <laughs> Just make me feel better, all right? So as we allow this to happen, what happens is you begin to have a discerning heart. And the, the point of a discerning heart is so that you can actually focus on God. It's so that you learn how to choose God. And, and that learning and this discernment and the success of it is you begin to be... In, you begin to be in, attentive. You begin to sense the subtleties of his movements. So often, all the Spirit does is nudge you. He might give you a, a, a red flag about something. He may give you a warning signal, or he may give you an adrenaline rush that says, do this. There's a subtlety to this, but it's always within the parameters of his word. And when you begin to learn these markers that he's at work, 
it begins to give such a joyful relationship, such intimacy with them, because you begin to not just say, I matter to him, you begin to feel how much you matter to him. But here's the deal. The more you begin to understand the markers, you begin to understand when you're turning away from God and when you're moving toward God. And the more you understand these subtle movements, these markers, the quicker you can begin to say, I want to move towards God and more fully towards God. So as I was thinking through this and thinking through some specifics where I'm trying to discern the will of God for my life and for my family and for our church, I came across this quote that was incredibly helpful to me. So it's a Christian psychologist, Margaret Silf, I believe is her name. And she wrote this. She said, for those drifting away from God, the action of God in their lives disturbs them and churns up their moods, creating peacelessness, while the things that come from their own kingdoms make them feel good and leave them apparently contented. Here's the deal with not dealing with reality, particularly the reality of disappointment, is that by not dealing with it, it never stays disappointment. It goes into something else. It can go into fear, anxiety, anger. It can go into other things. Hurt cannot just stay hurt. You have to draw conclusions about what hurts you. And we're always looking for some degree of power over what has wounded us or what has disappointed us, what hasn't met our expectations. And so what happens is you have a choice at that moment when you're dealing with life to either drift in the current away from God or to move intentionally towards God. Now, why is that so important? It's, it's, it's so important because you never move towards God by drifting. You only move towards God by conscious thought and conscious thought uh, choice. But you can drift by just becoming passive. You can drift away just by hardening your heart, just by saying, well, that's the way it always is for me, and I'm just not going to feel anymore. And you just you begin to just use coping mechanisms, and you get further and further away from God. But here's the deal. There's <laughs> a good news and a bad news here. <laughs> so the good news is God won't let you drift forever. But the bad news is what you found to be somewhat pleasurable contentment or whatever in your drift, he's going to mess up. That's what this is saying. It will feel like God is your opponent because he's taking away your contentment. He's taking away the thing in the flesh that you were trying to use to distract yourself. So he's the one churning up the water. You tried to get you a little shade and he's taking your shade away. That's the indicator if you'll begin to recognize where you say, wait a minute, he's disassembling what I assembled. He's destabilizing what I've tried to stabilize. Now you have a choice, curse God or say, no, this is the love of God. Do you understand? The Holy Spirit's curriculum for you is to put you with an annoying spouse. <laughs> Ask Lisa. The curriculum of the Holy Spirit is to give you a boss that you wish you had a holy hand grenade that you could smite him with. The curriculum of the Holy Spirit 
is to sometimes destabilize what you in your head said, this should have happened, this could have happened. Why didn't this happen? And he's in on that so that you don't drift because he loves you too much to let you drift for too long. So instead of being angry with him and resistant to him, say, God, I've been drifting. Now I turn my face towards you. But you see, as you turn your face towards God, when he's discontenting you, then you begin to realize for those who are moving toward God, the opposite effects are apparent. When God is touching them, they feel at peace. They know that somehow they are on solid ground. When they are hopefully temporarily attending to their own kingdoms, they feel like they are not really living true. And they experience inner turmoil. See, either today, today, you are moving towards God. But if you're not intentional, then you're drifting away from God. And you see, God is looking to destabilize your idols, to displace them. But you never get the fullness of what he wants to do for you just when he's destabilizing. It's only when you begin to say, Lord, I give you consent Come in and be the power to change. Come in and be the the means of change in my life. In other words, you don't try to change yourself. You take your broken self and say, Holy Spirit, here I am. Holy Spirit, here's where I need healing. Holy Spirit, this is my weakness. Will you show me the path to strength? And if you'll do that, you'll begin to realize moving towards him is what you were made for. Now, Is this connecting with you? So now's my therapy time. So so what happens to me quite often is that I do pretty well, and then the disappointments add up. And as they add up, they just get get more and more effectual on on me and my attitude. Now, the thing that's so interesting, in, at least in my marriage, and I've seen it in other marriages, what affects me or bothers me doesn't bother Lisa. And what bothers Lisa doesn't always bother me. So she's pouring out her heart, and I'm like, you know, get over it. <laughs> and uh, I'm pouring out my heart, and she's like, you know, have more faith. <laughs> because, because for some reason, what affects me doesn't affect her, and, and we're not on pay. We're not... We're not on page together. And I want to talk about it for the next 10 years. <laughs> this person is horrible. This person is rotten. They're terrible. They're awful. All these kind of things. So some people in ministry, something about people abusing their power really bugs me. When people have places of authority and they don't use it in a healthy way, but rather they they use that authority, the spiritual authority, to oppress others. It, it gets to me. I mean, I grew up in an abusive home, and abuse of authority was so prevalent, and I felt so powerless as a kid. And so now I feel that powerless come back. And so it's not just disappointment. It be, begins to be anger. It begins to be you know, fear. It begins to be protective of others. But the problem is I have no authority in the area where I'm seeing this abuse of authority. And I have no real responsibility. Nobody's asking me to help. Nobody's asking my opinion whatsoever. But people involved are people I care about. So it, it churns inside of me. And here's what I've noticed. If I drift, 
If I drift, I just become angry. And I become angry that I can't fix it. I become angry that others aren't fixing it. And I lose all my patience. And guess what? The people doing the abuse are not getting any of this. But my poor wife and others who are around me are feeling me change from a person that's safe into a person who's dangerous. So if I drift, it's not a good thing. But a part of me wants to drift because I want to, I'm angry and I want to stay there. And I want to say it's righteous anger, but, it, but it's drifting anger. And so I had to realize as I was going through this and talking about success, as I realized the success isn't saying I'm, you know, I'm not angry when I am, because that's reality. But the success is, will I move in my anger toward God or will I move away from it? Now, what does that mean? Well, it means this. That when you go with the flow of God's kingdom, you're floating in the river river of divine love. So here's, here's what moving towards God means for me. Is I know these two people and I want to see them change. And I'm upset by the way they're carrying out their leadership. And I'm upset for the people they're hurting. But I don't get to call them monsters. I don't get to vilify them. I don't get to say, God, you love me, but you don't love them because they're such bad people. The truth is, I'm as unlovable as they are. And the gospel says we're all so evil that Christ had to die for us, but we're also loved that Christ chose to die for us. So either the gospel is true or it's not. You see, I'm not standing before God because I'm worthy of love. He's made me lovable because he loves me. And even when I've failed and when I've drifted or when I've made mistakes or whatever it is, his river of divine love is always what I fall into even when I mess up. So guess what? Those people I'm mad at, he loves. I don't want him to. I want him to smitest thou them. You understand? Do you understand? I'm being very vulnerable to you here. Because I know you and I have got to change our process. We have to move to God when the reality disappoints us. When we see what could be, but it's not. When we see what should be, but it's not. And we say, God, I'm going to move towards you no matter what. Because whether reality is exactly what I want it to be, there is a reality beyond reality. And it's the reality of his divine love, which I float in even when I'm a mess. Guess what? That means the people I'm mad at float in that same divine love. You know, God is funny in who he chooses to love. He only loves broken people. He only loves losers. He only loves evil people. Because that's what we are. And you see, if somehow you think you can hold on to anger at somebody else and still be in the grace and the mercy of God, then you've forgotten what grace and mercy even is. Because if you're demanding justice from others, then you'll have to stand in justice for yourself. And if, and if any of us in this room were to stand before God on the basis of our own works, then the, then the only end of that would be the cross crucifixion so the question that I'm really asking you today is you're moving towards God 
are you drifting away? Are you doing things of your own initiative which ultimately will fail and eternally will fail? Are you moving intentionally towards that floating in divine love? But I wanted to to close this out on that idea again. Counting the cost of building your life. What you say yes to, what you say no to. Let me just, there's one quote I want you to have. There's an old sermon, it touched me. It said, reader, what is your word worth? What value do you place on your word? What value do others place on it? What value does God place on your yes being yes and your no being no? God wants you to speak the truth and lie not. Your standing, your influence, your usefulness all depend on your faithfulness. If you are faithful, you will be faithful to your promises. Think seriously over these things. If you are at fault, set about to amend. Such a fault will be a blight upon your life and upon your character until it is corrected. When the psalmist pictures a righteous person, he says that he swears promises to his own hurt and changes not. Are you a person where your yes is yes and your no is no? Where you've counted the cost of what you invest in? The eternal cost of what you invest in? Are you that sort of righteous person? Will you stand with me as we close today? I've been struck in this service as I was in the last, just about this, this portion on disappointment because I feel like there's almost a, a test for us in this, a test question for us. In your disappointment, are you moving away from God or are you moving towards God? And I'll, I'll tell you, disappointment for me um, is honestly the place that I try to avoid the most. It's the place that I try to self-protect even for my kids, I don't ever want them to feel disappointed to the point where when I know that they are, I carry on longer than they need me to carry on for. And I'm apologizing longer than I need to apologize for. And they're like, mom, we're over it. Like, get over it. But disappointment to me is, is that place of I want to protect it. And so this question for me is what do I do in that disappointment? Do I move towards God, which is hard, or do I start to drift? And so church, that's the question that we're posing this morning is, are you moving towards God or are you drifting from God? Because he wants your yes. He wants to step into those places that we try so hard to self-protect and keep safe and not be disappointed. And when you start to ask those questions of, well, why am I so disappointed? What, what did I think was going to happen? That's a step towards God allowing him to speak to those places, allowing him to assess what's going on in you and listening to his response to you. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, I don't like disappointment. I don't like even having to face it or look at it or ask the question of where in my life I'm disappointed. But Lord, I know that I have given access to things that I didn't need to give access to. And so when they don't play out the way that I think they should, I get disappointed. And when I think that the outcomes depend on me, I get disappointed. So I recognize that this is a very real thing that takes place in my life and in the lives of others. 
But Lord, I want to take a step towards you. I want to move towards you and give you my disappointment. I want to say that while it's easier to just drift away, I want to float in the very real love of the Father. And so we take a step towards you this morning. We give you our yes. We give you our consent. We say, Jesus, work on the inside of us to be the people you want us to be. We give you all the glory and all the honor. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.